Well, good evening, everyone, and thank you to Colin and to the musicians behind us. I think we missed a verse somewhere, Tim, on one of the hymns. I was waiting for it, but never mind. Maybe Tim has some theological reason for missing out. I think it's just a, a sin of omission, was it? Thank you very much, anyway, for playing for us. Welcome, everyone, if you're here. Uh, we're making our way through these wonderful verses, uh, chapters in John's Gospel about the words the Lord Jesus spoke before he returned to heaven. Let me say a few words by way of introduction. As some of you may know, Nita, my wife and I, uh, after Easter, in fact at the end of the Easter weekend, we'll be travelling some 12,500 miles to the country of Papua New Guinea. Uh, we're going to be representing the United Kingdom in special celebrations for 50 years of Bible translation work in that country through the work of Wycliffe Bible Translators. Uh, 50 years since they began work, uh, so far the New Testament has been completed in 160 of the 860 languages spoken in that country, and work is continuing in another 155 languages so far. And one of these projects which is already in process is in the Samat language. And one of our own mission personnel, Teresa Wilson, uh, and her colleague Beata Wozna from Poland, uh, began working on this language uh, some time ago. I think it's four or five years ago now. Is it five, Joyce? About five years ago. So our visit to Papua New Guinea will also be an opportunity to visit uh, Teresa and Beata. However, this is no easy process uh, because the same language is spoken in some tiny islands called the Ninigo Islands. They're way out in the ocean. This is Papua New Guinea down the bottom. And you go way out into the ocean to these very tiny islands where the Samak people live. And the only way really to get there in any reasonable time, other than swimming, which is a long way, or, or taking a boat, which is also a long journey, is to fly in a small Cessna airplane. And in a recent email to us, which I was sharing with my wife, uh, Teresa wrote, before you fly in the C-206 plane over water, the pilot will give you some instructions to read and digest about safety procedures. We also fly with a life raft when we leave WeWAC and go over the ocean. Well now, we have a good pilot and we hope and pray that we'll not have to use the life raft. And I would encourage you, I hope you will pray likewise. However, it's better to be prepared, forewarned, is forearmed. And that's not the end of the challenge. For once we're there on the main island, we then plan to visit the different islands around where the people live, and this involves travelling in a small boat with an outboard motor. Again, Teresa emailed, as we will be visiting the different islands by boat, please pray for calm seas. In case of problems, I understand you also carry with you a special kit, if you go over the side, an emergency kit to ward off sharks. Uh, those sitting near my wife can minister to her at the end of this service. 
Again, we hope and pray that we'll not have to use the emergency kit and we hope and pray you'll do likewise. But it's better to be prepared. Forewarned is forearmed. Now, in these weeks leading up to Easter, we've been focusing on this record in John's Gospel of the final words Jesus spoke to his disciples before he left them and went to the cross and then returned to heaven. And we've seen that Jesus is preparing his disciples for what lies ahead of them. They don't know, but he does. And he's telling them, don't be troubled. Keep trusting in me. Stay close to me. This morning, uh, when Richard was preaching, we were looking at the importance of staying in love with Jesus, remaining in close relationship with him. And now we begin to see why this is so essential. Because Jesus now begins to warn them about what lies ahead of them in the future. Not what might happen to them, but what will happen to them. And now we see that the key word love in the early part of John 15 is replaced by another more alarming word, the word hate. So let's read what Jesus said about these warning signs. You really do need a Bible in front of you. If you haven't got one, take one out of the pew. We're looking at John 15, verse 18, through to John 16, uh, verse 4. It's page 1083. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, if you can't see one, or there's not one near you, ask someone to pass one to you, would you? Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, when we fly on that plane, I will listen very carefully to what the pilot says. And if you're a Christian, you need to listen very carefully to what Jesus says. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own, as it is, You do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law, they hated me Without reason. When the counsellor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All of this I have told you, so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. 
I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. These are the words of Jesus, the Son of God. Now let's have a look at what they mean together. Let's just pray and ask God to help us to focus on this, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you for these words which were directly applicable to those first disciples and yet are applicable to us because they contain basic essential truths about the future and about our relationship with the world in which we live. So we pray you'll help us to understand them, to store them in our minds and to be prepared for whatever lies ahead of us in the future, whether it's sometime soon, even when we get home from this church, or whether it's sometime in the future, may we be those who are prepared by the word of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, I just turn back to chapter 15 and the final verses, second half of this chapter, verses 18 through 27, and you will find in these verses two facts about the future if you are a follower of Jesus. Two facts about the future if you're a follower of Jesus. Let me say to those of you who are maybe not yet followers of Jesus, listen carefully because Jesus always told people to count the cost before following him. And this is part of the cost of being a Christian. If you are a follower of Jesus, be encouraged, be prepared. Okay, two facts about the future. I'll tell you what they are and then we'll come to them. In these verses you will find, first of all, the hatred you will experience, and then secondly, near the end of the chapter, the help you will receive. Alright? The hatred you will experience, the help you will receive. First of all then, the hatred you will experience. Verses 18 through to 25. Deep down, all of us like to be popular. We hate to be hated. But Jesus says, if you are his follower... You will be hated by the world. The source of the hatred is what Jesus calls the world. Six times in two verses, 18 and 19, it's actually only five in the translation here, but in the original, six times Jesus talks about what he calls the world. Now, we use the word the world to describe the planet on which we live. But in the New Testament, especially in John's Gospel, Jesus uses the word, the world, in a particular sense. He uses it to refer to the world of people. To human society made up of billions of people. And Jesus says, this world of people that we live in is not morally neutral. But by nature, by fallen human nature, is biased to do what is wrong and by disposition and practice is hostile to God. In short, it is a world which is in rebellion against God. As such, this world of people and every person in it is doomed. Or to use the word that Jesus uses, is perishing. And now, in such a scenario, like that of a condemned building, 
you might expect God to send in a demolition crew to raise it to the ground and build again. Yesterday we celebrated the new building at Nidri and that's what we did. The building was falling apart and in the end we simply sent in the bulldozers, raised it to the ground and yesterday we celebrated a wonderful new building. Well, that's not an illustration of what God did with the world. He did it long ago with Noah, but since then he's persisted with humanity. Amazingly and surprisingly, God sent his son into a world of rebellion against him. A rebel world. If you've got a Bible, turn back to the most famous verses in the, in the Bible probably. Just further back in John's Gospel, chapter 3. It's on page 1066, which is easy to remember for obvious reasons. In this Bible anyway. And it's all about God's love. The world is in rebellion against God despite his love. And here's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's the purpose. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. It was because the world was condemned that God sent his son to save it, to save you if you're not yet a Christian. It's because every person is perishing that God sent his son to give the free gift of eternal life, a restored relationship with him that goes on forever, even beyond death. But what was the reaction of the world to such love? Well, a very divided reaction. Look at what Jesus goes on to say in verse 18. John 3.18 Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. The source of this hatred is the world of people in rebellion against God despite his love and so also in rebellion against God's Son. The overwhelming response to Jesus, the response of the world, was to hate him particularly because of what he taught. Because when Jesus spoke, he exposed human guilt, our culpability before God. Look what he says in verse 2. Let's get back to chapter 15 uh, and our, our passage. But now he says, verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. But you ask, what about the amazing miracles Jesus did? Would you not expect a man who healed the sick, fed the hungry raise the dead, to be very popular. Not if you know human nature, fallen human nature. No, the world hated Jesus because of what he taught and despite his miracles, but what Jesus says again. Now they have seen these miracles and yet they have hated both me and my Father. That's verse 24, it's a misprint on the screen. And Jesus says that such a response is totally unreasonable. Yet it's absolutely expected. But this is to fulfill what was written in their law, quoting Psalm 35 and Psalm 69, they hated me without reason. The final proof of this hatred is about to be seen. 
Jesus is about to go to the cross. And a hostile mob will shout, crucify him, away with him. We don't want him. As someone said most famously, man, given the chance, will murder his maker. I've heard it said on several occasions that polls show that people are basically pro-Jesus but anti-church. I'm not as worried as they think ought to be about the latter, although it should make us think if you belong to a church. But the former surprises me. I wonder what Jesus people are pro. Almost certainly a Jesus of folklore and myth, a Jesus of our own imagining. For if you read the Gospels and take seriously what Jesus said, you would be anti-Jesus. Or do we think our world is any different or better than the world of first century Palestine that nailed him to a cross? No, the teaching of Jesus tells us that the world is basically anti-Jesus. And they may seek to cover it up with a veneer of politeness. But once the real Jesus is explained... And once his message is proclaimed, once you persuade people to actually read John's Gospel, for example, then the mask comes off. Let me give you one example, and there are many. And they're emerging far more in our society today. If you pick up your newspaper, you will notice this trend. When the Narnia film was released last year, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, there was an article in the Guardian newspaper by Polly Toynbee. The headline said this, Narnia represents everything that is most hateful about religion. The subtitle said, Children won't get the Christian subtext, but unbelievers should keep a sick bag handy during Disney's new epic, writes Polly Toynbee. Now, notice what she said. Of all the elements of Christianity, the most repugnant is the notion of the Christ who took our sins upon himself and sacrificed his body in agony to save our souls. Did we ask him to? No, we didn't. But he did. Now, do you, do you feel the hatred? This is not neutral reporting. And you see where it's focused. It's focused on the death of Jesus, symbolized by the killing of Aslan, uh, the great lion, if you remember the film itself. So, this is the background, really. The source of the hatred is the world in rebellion against God and against his son. But Jesus goes on further. He takes this, as it were, for granted, and I've tried to explain it a little bit. He says, the focus now then will be upon you if you are my followers. If you bear my name, you should expect the same reaction and treatment that I received. The focus of the world, the focus of the hatred, is the followers of Jesus. Why? Because they no longer belong to the world. Look what he says in verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world... It would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. The followers of Jesus are hated because they now serve a different master. Remember the words I spoke to you, verse 20. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted you, me, they will persecute you. You see, the world regards you as a traitor who has changed sides. 
if you now follow Jesus Christ. Because you don't go along with the crowd. You don't follow the way of the world. There are times when you have to stand up and speak up. And that's what Jesus says as faithful servants. You must faithfully teach what your master taught. So the followers of Jesus are hated because of what they teach. Verse 20, if they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. In his commentary on John's Gospel, Don Carson writes, the world is a society of rebels and therefore it finds it hard to tolerate those who are in joyful allegiance to the king to whom all loyalty is due. Such people are viewed as traitors and so they are hated. And it is all because of Jesus. Jesus is the reason. Verse 21, they will treat you this way because of my name for they do not know the one who sent me. Now as I was preparing this, I'm thinking to myself, we folk in Charlotte Chapel are thinking to ourselves, what does this really mean? How many of us are really hated like that? Now there are obvious places where this hate is clearly expressed and where this persecution comes out. I hope you read the news regularly. I mean, intelligent news. You know, not the tabloids, but read something intelligent. I won't tell you what to read, but just try and keep it with what's happening in the real world, all right? Now, just as much of interest, how many of you know who this man is? Just stick your hand up if you have any idea who it is. One, two. This is even in the metro last week, all right? So you should have got it, all right? When you're on the bus. His name is Abdul Rahman. He's an Afghani convert to Christianity, a Muslim who's become a Christian. He's standing trial in Kabul for apostasy. That means he is turned against the faith in which he was born, Islam, and embraced the Christian faith freely without coercion. And the sentence under Islamic law, he has two options. He can either return to Islam and be forgiven or he can be executed. A lot of protests going on at the moment. He was denounced to the police last month by whom? By his family. He was in dispute about the custody of his two daughters. He's been held in Kabul Central Prison. One of 50 prisoners in a cell meant to house 15. Most prisoners, the only way you get food is your family brings it to you. His family don't bring him anything. Now you imagine in that situation. Now the question I think to myself is, is this guy the exception? Is our situation in the West the norm for Christians? Is hatred the norm or the exception? If we take the teaching of Jesus seriously, let alone the history of the Christian church, then what he is going through is the norm. We are the exception. Now the question I want to ask myself is, why are we the exception? Well, partly because we live in a democratic country where there is freedom of religion, which is based on Christian principles and foundations, which are being eroded fast in our nation, which is why the hatred is going to increase and why the opposition is going to get hotter. If we are not hated, if we are popular, could it be there is so little about us that is different from the world that we don't disturb the world in which we live? Someone famously put it, if following Jesus were a criminal offence, would there be enough evidence to convict you? 
I, don't get me wrong. I don't mean tomorrow you go back to university or college and, and, and try and be unpopular, you know, and, and really be objectionable. There are some Christians who, frankly, are objectionable for the wrong reasons. We won't, won't go into that. I, I simply mean, if we live like Jesus lived, if we teach what Jesus taught, then we will be unpopular. We'll be hated. The more we become like our master, the more we're obedient to his commands, so the more distinctive we'll become. Listen, this is what we are trying to aim for as a church, to be conspicuous for Christ, to impact our world as a distinctive community of believers transformed by the power and message of Christ. That's not just a slogan. It's something we need to work out in our lives. Is our society filled with so little darkness that the light doesn't contrast very brightly? Surely not. Is it not more the case that our light has become dimmed by the darkness or we're hiding the light in a, under a bowl, retreating behind the barricades in our church buildings for fear of the darkness? It might expose and the opposition it may arouse. Has the salt lost its saltiness? I don't have any neat answers. I simply want you to take the words of Jesus seriously and think through what he's saying here and think about how we live. You know, I often hear Christians saying, wouldn't it be wonderful if we lived like the early church in the book of Acts? But are we willing to pay the price of living like the early church? Facing opposition, hatred, injury, lust. The cost of standing up for Jesus against a majority opinion is a costly one. And as the darkness begins to increase, I have bad news for you as a Christian. It's going to get more and more difficult. We're going to become more and more unpopular. I could give you lots of illustrations, but I hope you're up to speed with what's happening in the world in which we live. Now, you may say, boy, that's pretty frightening stuff, isn't it? Yeah, that's the hatred little experience. But notice what Jesus goes on to speak about. He then goes on to speak about the help you will receive. Verses 26 and 27. I need a drink like Penny. We've already seen, if you've been in this series, and if you haven't, go back and listen. You can download it on the internet if you're interested or get tapes from the tape library. We've already seen in chapter 14 that Jesus has promised the grieving disciples that he will not abandon them as orphans by going away, but he's going to send them some help. What he calls the promised counsellor. Chapter 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, says Jesus, he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and he will be in you. The literal meaning of the word counsellor is someone who comes alongside to help you. But help is no help unless the helper has the power and the authority to help you with what you're struggling with. For example, let's suppose my car breaks down and you see me by the side of the road with the bonnet scratching my head with steam arising or something like that, I will very much appreciate it if you stop and give me a hand. I will appreciate it a lot more if it was, uh, say, uh, Brian Wilson, aren't we? Brian's here, or someone who knows about cars. Oh, Luke, where's Luke? He knows a bit about cars. Uh, oh, he thinks it is. So, um, <laughs> sorry, Luke, I'm being rude. Where is Luke? Did, did, did I see him? Oh, there he is. Thank you, Luke, being rude about you. But uh, I'll be glad to see Luke, because Luke will help to fix my car. You see, 
He's got the ability to be a helper. So, here's the context. I'm going to be in all sorts of trouble with all sorts of people after this service, but don't worry about that. <laughs> what kind of help do the followers of Jesus need when they're hated? Well, let me put it another way. Supposing you're finding it tough as a Christian. What are you hoping from the Holy Spirit? What kind of help do you think you really need? You know, I guess most Christians would say something like, I hope I'll feel really encouraged and reassured. And I hope I'll get some relief from the pressure. Now, nothing wrong with any of those things. But notice this is not the main role here of the Holy Spirit. You see, the reason for the hatred of the world against the Christian is because of what we believe and what we teach, the words of Jesus. So Jesus promises help from the Holy Spirit for this task. Jesus says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and what will he do? He'll, he'll talk about me. He'll testify about me. Verse 26. When the counsellor comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth that goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. But, he will not testify about Jesus without a human voice. So Jesus says, his followers must also testify about him. You must testify. And you must also testify. Verse 27. For you have been with me from the beginning. Uh, the word translated testify means to be a witness about something. To report something you've experienced. The first disciples had a particular role to report what they'd experienced. Which is why we've got the New Testament and the record of who Jesus was and what he said and what he did. But every follower of Jesus is called to testify about him. In the face of opposition. So in order to equip them for this... Jesus promised the Holy Spirit's help. Do you remember? After he rose from the dead, just before he returned to heaven, he made a promise to his followers. He promised them power from the Holy Spirit. Power for what? Power to witness. Acts 1 verse 8. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that promise was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured upon the church and as Jesus promised, he is no longer with us, but he is in us. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you. For what purpose? To help you to live for Christ, to be his witness. Think again of those first disciples. What was the result of their experience when they were filled with the Holy Spirit? Did they not say, wow, this is a wonderful experience? And we must build a shrine in this upper room so that people can come and gather. No, they went out into the streets proclaiming who Jesus is. And Peter gave this great sermon. At the end of it, he summarized it by saying, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What was the result? Many people accepted his message. 3,000 added to the church that day. But as with Jesus, the message they proclaimed stirred up opposition. And what followed was persecution. And following a miracle performed in the name of Jesus, they were hauled before the authorities who, who delivered their verdict after the trial. They called them in again, after discussing it, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Acts 4 verse 6, uh, 18. But Peter and John respond, we can't do that. 
Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And on their release, they went back to the other believers who were gathered together and they had a big prayer meeting. And what was their prayer request? Lord, let upon the persecution. No, notice their prayer. Acts 4, 29-30. This is what they prayed. Now, Lord, consider their threats. You deal with it in the way you see fit. And enable your servants to do what? To speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They claim the promised help of the Holy Spirit to testify, to witness about Jesus. And was their prayer answered? Acts 4.31, the result, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So, in the context of the hatred disciples inevitably face, we have the help of the Holy Spirit insofar as we fulfill our mandate. Our mission to testify about Jesus to be his witnesses. If we fail to witness for Christ, two things will happen. The hatred will lessen and the help will be reduced. Say that again. If we fail to witness for Christ, two things will happen. The hatred will lessen and the help will be removed. Notice this clear connection between the Spirit's help and the disciples' witness. If you cease witnessing, the opposition will cease so will the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So, in summary, if you are a follower of Jesus, you will experience the hatred of the world because of your witness and the help of the Holy Spirit in your witness. Now, the conclusion. Chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. Jesus says, I've told you all this. Why? Why? so that you won't give up when it happens. Nothing worse than surprises that catch you unawares. And you say, nobody told me this was going to happen. Imagine joining the army and you get posted to Iraq and someone fires a gun at you. You say, gosh, I joined it for the recreational facilities. Somebody's firing guns at me. No, it's in big print, friends. If you join an army, you expect to fight. If you follow Jesus, Jesus says, this is not the small print job. You know, know, sometimes when we tell people about this, if you're not a Christian yet, I'm telling you as loudly and as clearly as I possibly can. Friends, Jesus did not put this in the small print at the bottom of the page. You know, you get caught out like that. A couple of years ago, our dog ate my hearing aid. Well, well, he crunched it up. And it had been very kindly given me by our friends at the House of Hearing. And I discovered it was very expensive. And they said, well, just, just ring up your insurance agent and you'll have it on your contents policy. So I rang the insurance agents who are also Christian friends and said, the dog's crunched my hearing aid up. I need to claim on it. And they said, well, check up on it for you. And they rang me back and they said, sorry, there's a clause in the bottom in small print that says, accept pet damage. I'd never seen that. Now, Jesus doesn't say, look, 
Small print, gosh, I forgot to tell you, but it's just a sideline. You, you might have a bit of difficulty if you follow me. <laughs> he said in big letters, if this, you know, if you're going to follow me, expect opposition, expect hatred, expect persecution, count the cost. And so he says here to his disciples, don't give up. All this I've told you is so that you will not go astray. The word go astray is a very interesting Greek word. It, it's a word, uh, used of a trap by which you catch an animal. Did you ever do this when you were a kid, where you, you, you've got a bird, you know, and you put some food underneath the tin can, and you put a stick underneath, and then you had a, a bit of string on the stick, and when the bird went, no, some of you did this, and uh, I bet Rodney did this in Orkney, yes, he's nodding his head on, the, on that farm, you know, catching rabbits, and then you pull the thing away, and you, sn- you snared it. The Greek word for that s- snare is scandalon. Actually, we derive the word scandal from it, to be scandalized. Now, Jesus says, don't be surprised about this because there's a special sting in the tail that might catch you unawares, and it's this. Not only will you be hated, but you will be hated by the religious authorities, the religious world, who think by persecuting you, they are serving God. They will put you out of the synagogue, the Jewish place of worship. In fact, Jesus says, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. But Jesus says, in actual fact, they think they're serving God, but in actual fact, they don't know God at all. The Father or the Son. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. Now again, notice the crucial issue. It is the exclusive claim of Jesus with the Father and the Son are one. It is the exclusive claim that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Saviour. It was rejected by the Jews of his day, by the Roman authorities, by the followers of all religions and the followers of no religion. And the scandal of our day is still the same. It will increasingly become the same, which is the uniqueness of Christ. The apostles said, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. Now, under such pressure, religious pressure, the great danger is we may be tempted to abandon the faith. And so Jesus warns his disciples so that when it happens they won't be caught by surprise. Verse 4, I've told you this so that when the time comes you will remember that I warned you I didn't tell you this at first because I was with you. Soon he won't be with them. Then they will be the focus of the attack. And if they are not prepared, they could be tempted to turn back and give up on their faith. Don Carson writes, The greatest danger the apostles will confront from the opposition of the world is not death, but apostasy. Apostasy means to turn away from the faith, to deliberately reject Christ in the face of opposition. And what Jesus predicted came true. Nearly all the disciples he spoke to suffered martyrdom for the faith. In fact, the word martyr is the same word in Greek as witness, martyrion. Witness, witnessed unto death. Most of the opposition came from the religious authorities. And ironically, what they thought they were doing, offering a service to God, in actual fact, they didn't know it, they were. At the end of his life, the Apostle Paul is about to be executed by the Roman authorities. Last book he wrote on record to Timothy in the New Testament. At the instigation of the Jewish authorities, he's about to lose his life. And he writes his last letter and he says, The killing of a Christian is an offering that God accepts. 
I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. Yet we should not forget that this same Paul stood holding the coats of those who killed the first martyr, Stephen. As Tertullian, great North African Christian leader said, end of second century, the blood of the martyrs is seed. People have expanded that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The killing of a Christian is not just an offering that God accepts, but a testimony God uses. And down through the centuries, and again, we're woefully ignorant of the history of the church over these last two centuries, two millennia. The persecution has not always come from the outside. More often it's come from within the church. If you've ever been to Oxford, in the centre of Oxford is a plaque which marks the spot where three Christian leaders were burnt at the stake. Two bishops and an archbishop in 1555 and 1556. On October the 16th, 1555, as the flames were being lit, Bishop Latimer turned to his more fearful companion, Ridley, and he said, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Down through the centuries, the light of the gospel has burned most brightly against this background of hatred and persecution. More people were martyred for Christ in the 20th century than all the other 19 put together. You see, friends, we're not the, excep- we're not the norm. We're the exception. Make the most of it. Don't look for persecution, but expect it. Are we prepared to pay the relatively lower cost at present? To continue to witness for Christ? And are we prepared for hatred or even worse? You may be sitting there saying, ah, never happen. Don't be so sure. Take the words of Jesus seriously. Forewarned is forearmed. These are the words of Jesus. Let's pray together.